Welcome to the Northeast Christian Podcast. We're so excited that you've decided to check out our weekly messages. We hope that you're challenged and inspired by what you're hearing today. We'd love to have you join us this weekend at one of our campuses or online at northeast.live. For more information on Northeast, visit us at necchurch.org. If you love the Northeast podcast, subscribe to our channel and leave us a comment or a rating in the Apple Podcast Store. Today we're starting a, uh, a two-week series. It's a short series. We've been doing lots of practical stuff over the last couple months. We did the parenting series. We did a, a vision and values and direction series where uh, we talked practically about what's going to be changing and continuing at our church in the future. Um, today's going to be a little bit of a, of a shift. Rather than being so practical, I'm going to be a little preachy today. All right, Maybe a little bit peppy too. Um, so I ask for your forgiveness ahead of time, but... What I want to talk about today is at the heart of what it means to be a disciple. At the heart of it. 2 Corinthians 5, hopefully you found your way there. We're going to start in verse 11, read through 6-2. The apostle Paul tells us we should be ambassadors for Christ. This is what that looks like. 5-11. Paul says, because we understand our fearful responsibility to the Lord, we work hard to persuade others. God knows we are sincere, and I hope you know this too. Are we committing ourselves to you again? No. We're just giving you a reason to be proud of us. So you can answer those who brag about having a spectacular ministry rather than having a sincere heart. If it seems we're crazy, it is to bring glory to God. And if we are in our right minds, it is for your benefit. Either way, Christ's love controls us. Mm. Since we believe that Christ died for all, we also believe that we have all died to our old life. He died for everyone so that those who receive his new life will no longer live for themselves. Instead, they will live for Christ who died and was raised for them. So we have stopped evaluating others from a human point of view. At one time, we thought of Christ merely from a human point of view. Oh, how differently we know him now. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone, a new life has begun. And all this is a gift from God. It's a gift who, who brought us back to himself through Christ. God has given us this task of reconciling people to him. For God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against him, and he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. So we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. For God made Christ who never sinned to be the offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God through Christ. Chapter six, so as God's partners, we beg you not to accept this marvelous gift of God's kindness and then ignore it. For God says at just the right time, I heard you on the day of salvation, I helped you. Indeed, the right time's now. Today is the day of salvation. Mm. Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for every last word of his word. Okay, now let me illustrate this passage for you. 
Ready? Uh, on March 13th, 2013, Cardinal Jorge Mario Bergoglio of Buenos Aires, Argentina was named Pope. Shortly after, he chose the name Francis. You may recognize Francis. He chose Francis after St. Francis because he admired St. Francis's love for the poor. He was the first Latin American Pope ever. Now, I don't know if you remember, but when Francis came to office, he's a really big deal, a really big deal. He made um, uh, his first visit to the United States in 2015. Uh, he went to Philadelphia to hold mass there. And I got to say, do you remember this? I remember, I remember. Philadelphia lost their ever-loving minds. Like they, I mean, everybody, they, they started new radio stations to track the Pope everywhere that he went. There were nine new Pope-inspired beers developed by local breweries. I mean, the NFL changed its schedule for the Pope. Now, Michael Gerson is a columnist for the Washington Post. Uh, he's also uh, George W. Bush's former speechwriter. And lecturing on Pope Francis once, he said this. He said, you know you're a cultural phenomena when the NFL moves its schedule for you. <laughs> he went on to point out that that season, they only moved games for two people. One is Pope Francis, the second, any guesses? Taylor Swift. <laughs> now, uh, you remember what made Pope Francis, specifically him, such a cultural phenomenon, though? It's that he had this air of legitimacy to him. In a time where the Catholic Church was struggling, he just kind of felt like Jesus, you know? So everyone was trying to claim him, but he didn't actually fit in anyone's boxes. I remember Obama's White House was trying to claim him, but he would not be claimed by them because he held a compassionate moral traditionalism on matters of life and sexuality. And he was a strong advocate for religious freedom. So then on the flip side, the right tried to claim him, but he was just too outspoken on social justice, dismantling prejudice around the world. That's like his trademark, by the way, Francis when he was chosen the Roman Catholic Church, their public image was not good, just to say the least. There was sexual misconduct, financial impropriety, uh, deception at the highest levels of leadership. But immediately he walks in and like flips the narrative. Because here was the Pope carrying his own suitcase. Suspending a bishop for building a multi-million dollar mansion. Touching the disfigured and sneaking at night to feed the poor. Washing the feet of Muslims. Inviting the homeless to his 80th birthday party. I mean, you wanna know what the Pope's birthday party looks like? Looks like a fellowship hall with some homeless men and women. You see, what made this so powerful about Francis is that it was not, and to this day is not, a public relations stunt. This is just who Jorge Bergoglio is. He's not an expert in marketing. Uh, he's not a strategist in rebranding. But Michael Gerson went on to point out that this Pope will be studied at Harvard Business School as an example of rebranding for generations to come. 
Now, I think as Christians, by the way, it's important. We have to learn from these sort of moments, these sort of figures in, in Christian culture and Christian history. So let me be clear for you here. The reason why Pope Francis is so strangely attractive to so many people is honestly pretty simple. It's not because he was fashionable, famous, or good-looking. No offense, Pope. I'm sorry. It's, it's not because he's a firebrand on social media. Just you know, flaming all of his enemies. It's not because he's a billionaire who just bought Twitter. And it is certainly not because he has updated Christianity's beliefs to make them more politically or socially palatable for our modern times. But this guy's a priest. He took a vow of poverty, okay? A vow of poverty. Like to a greedy, mammon-infested America, that just makes no sense. But here he is saying, hey, you don't actually need money to live a full life. Oh, you think that's crazy? Even more provocative, he took a vow of chastity. Yeah, see that hand in the back? What's that exactly? It means he's given up sexual experience to obey God. He represents the opposite of our culture, which says who you want to sleep with is who you are. If you can't romance whoever you want, you'll never be happy. A vow of chastity. That is nonsense to our world. But people are stunned by this man. And the reason why, again, let's not miss this, the reason why he makes people pause and admire and awe and think and reconsider is because of one thing. He acts like Jesus. Period. You just get the Jesus vibe from him. You know what I'm talking about? And he points every good and beautiful thing about him back to Jesus. Oh, are you impressed by this thing about my character or this thing about my convictions? Are you impressed by this thing about my compassion? Well, let me tell you where I got it from. Jesus. Jesus is why. And you see, uh, when people get a glimpse of Jesus, Christian or not, doesn't matter if it's imperfectly reflected in the life of a sinner like you or like me, it captivates them. It translates across every culture, every dividing line. The way of Jesus stirs the deepest longings of the human heart. It reminds us that our strongest desires, sex, money, power, are not our deepest desires. And as Gerson said it, he said, when representatives of Christ act like Jesus, true authority and influence returns. So that's what the next two weeks are about. It's about a simple prayer that I pray over our church all the time. My prayer is that we would have a similar reputation in this city. They just got the Jesus vibe, you know what I mean? Now, this is why we talk about our unique approach to evangelism at Northeast in this way. Uh, we say we always walk the walk and we're ready to talk the talk when the opportunity is right. That's us. Okay. This, is, this is a very, I think, biblical definition of evangelism. Okay. This is what it means to be an ambassador of Jesus. You always walk the walk and then you're ready to talk the talk when the opportunity is right. Paul has a word for this. He calls it an ambassador for Christ. For those of you who don't know, an ambassador is just someone who represents the interests of a king, usually in foreign territory. And the interest of our king is onefold, according to 2 Corinthians 5, reconciliation. That's what he wants. And in this passage I just read, 
Uh, Paul lays out some, some indicators, some key traits, if you will, that a true ambassador of Christ has if they're following him. So I wanna walk you almost verse by verse. If you've got your Bibles, you can open back up. Almost verse by verse through 2 Corinthians 5 here and show you some of the keys that he points out, all right? So you ready for this? Okay, there's five, there's five. Starting in verse 11, here's what Paul gives us as our first, trade, uh, our first trade of an, an ambassador. Um, it's what I call eternal urgency, eternal urgency, 511. Paul says, we understand our fearful responsibility to the Lord. Quick pause, if you want to, you can underline the word fearful responsibility and just take your finger and go up to verse 10. Because in verse 10, Paul talks about how we're all going to have to stand before the judge someday. You want to know what the fearful responsibility is inspired by? It's inspired by, previous verse, verse 10, the fact that Paul knows the eternal reality that one day, and I know this sounds a little turn or burn, but Paul gets that way sometimes. One day we're all going to stand before the judge and be judged. So verse 11, he says, we understand that fearful responsibility that we have to the Lord and we work hard to persuade others. There should be an eternal urgency to us, you see? Now, the best illustration I have ever uh, seen on this was, was done by Francis Chan once. I probably saw it like 10 years ago. I want to show you because I, I, mean, I think it's so, so good. Um, Caleb, come help me real quick, man. Can you help me? That's what you get for sitting in the first row, buddy. All right, take this and just, I just want you to take, down, take off down the aisle, man. All right, just take off. So um, it's very difficult, Caleb, just walking. No, okay. Now, so, uh, so Chan points out, keep going. You're good. Keep going. Let's really make this, let's really make this a good one. Right there. It's good. Okay. So, so let's pull it tight now. Let's pull it tight. Let's pull it tight. Okay. Are you letting me pull it tight? There it is. No? All right, Caleb. How, how far does the lights go back, Mac? I'm going to test you. There we go. Okay. Can you guys see me? Yeah? All right. So Chan's point is this. He's like, I want you to imagine that this line is your eternity. Which by the way, your eternity is even longer than this. But now in the grand scheme of eternity, you know how big your life is? It's like, you know, just this little place right here where I got my fingers pinched. See that? That's it. And yet your little life is crucial. It's critical. These are important breaths you're breathing right now because the way you leverage your little life, this little time right here between my fingers will be ultimately what determines the nature of your existence in all the time afterwards. You see? You see? This is the urgency of the moment. People say life is short. You're dang right it is. And so this is why the apostle Paul says, we must, we must approach this moment with eternal urgency. We have discovered the truth of life, the truth of life after life, and we must share this with the people we love. You see, you see? Okay, thanks Caleb, you're awesome man. You can just like throw it there on the ground or something or keep it, it's Halloween colors. Um, second, second. Second major trait is humble sincerity, humble sincerity. Ambassadors for Jesus 
have eternal urgency and humble sincerity. Verse 12, Paul says, are we committing ourselves to you again? No. We are giving you a reason to be proud of us so you can answer those, okay, quick pause here. You need to understand that when you're reading 2 Corinthians, one of, underneath all the theology, one of the subtext conversations Paul is having is a self-defense. Apparently there are leaders in Corinth who are attacking his legitimacy as an apostle. And so like you see this all throughout the letter, you see it even more so later when he talks about it in 2 Corinthians 11. He's defending himself, right? He's doing it right here in 2 Corinthians 5. So so let me read this again. He says, are we committing ourselves to you again? No, we are giving you a reason to be proud of us so you can answer those who brag about having a spectacular ministry rather than having a sincere heart. If it seems we're crazy, it is to bring glory to God. And if we are in our right minds, it is for your benefit. Now you can see here, Paul points out two two methods that this anti-Paul group is using against him in the community. Method number one is this. Talk about how spectacular their ministries are. Do you see it? Paul's, Paul's ministry is fine. Ours is amazing though, look it. And two, cast doubt on Paul's state of mind. Convince everyone that this guy's crazy. He's boring and he's crazy. That's the method. So how does Paul respond to that? Well, instead of trashing them back, he just simply says this. He says, test my heart, test my heart. Because they may have spectacular ministry, but I have sincerity of heart, a humble sincerity proven out in my time with you. Now, the point is clear here, y'all. As ambassadors of Jesus, we must remember that sincerity trumps spectacle when it comes to evangelism. Spectacular worship services may get someone to jump into a baptistry on a baptism weekend, but humble sincerity is what wins someone's heart over the long haul. One of the reasons why most of us don't share Jesus, by the way, is we've come to think that this is what saves people, this. You know, like when you get people in the room on Sunday morning, if you get them in the room, we get like professional musicians and a great speaker and pump the Jesus smoke, turn the volume up, here we go, right? Then people get saved. This is one of the downfalls, by the way, of an entire generation that, uh, that got saved in stadium crusades. Nothing wrong with stadium crusades. Praise God for them. Some of you were saved in them. Praise God. Let's just not put God only in that box, right? See, more often than not through the 2,000 year history of Christianity, people get saved and discipled and spiritually formed, not through spectacular moments, but through humble, sincere relationships around, I don't know, dinner tables. And you can be that. That's the good news of this. Maybe you can't sing a lick, which by the way, most of you can't. I stand out in that audience every week. Lord bless and keep you. Glad you're here, but you can't sing. Maybe you can't preach a lick. That's fine. That's fine. But you can love, and I mean this in literal terms, love the hell out of someone. Yes, you can. I promise you that. So take notes here. As ambassadors for Jesus, if you have a choice between humble sincerity or flashy spectacle, choose the former. One is relational, the other is usually egotistical. In our culture today, people have to post online about everything and add three filters to it to make it look cooler. And Paul's over here like, just get off the gram and buy somebody a cup of coffee. 
Third, third key trait for an ambassador is to be controlled by love, controlled by love. 514, he says, either way, Christ's love controls us. Great little memory verse right there for you. Either way, Christ's love controls us. Now, notice the phrase here, either way, either way. Again, Paul is referencing back to the previous verse here. He says, I don't know if, they, if you think I'm crazy like they're saying or if you think I'm, I'm saying. Either way, crazy or not, one thing nobody will deny is I am controlled by the love of Christ. Basically he says, sure, I may be crazy. Crazy for love. Like Mother Teresa kind of crazy. You know what I'm saying? That's the kind of crazy I want to be. I want to be so crazy that my financial advisor is like, I think you're giving too much. I want to be so crazy that I put myself in situations to sacrifice for Jesus and for my people that aren't necessarily safe. I want to be so crazy and so just full of love that I'm just, I don't know, like hugging people. I'm just kidding. Now, personal space, like too, many, too much hugging going on still, all right? But, now, you get, what I'm, you get what I'm saying though? That, that's what he wants to be known for, that level of crazy. I was reflecting on the, uh, the last 24 hours of, of Jesus' life this past week, reading the passages, because they're so critical to who we are. And, um, and two things occurred to me, just struck me. One, um, in the moments right before the passion of the Christ, everybody thought he was crazy. The religious leaders thought he was crazy because of the blasphemous claims he was making about his identity. His disciples thought he was crazy because he kept talking about how a Messiah had to suffer and they're like, that's not how Messiah, that's not, that's not how this Messiah is going to do it, I'm just saying. Basically, they did not trust his vision for the kingdom. They thought it was a little crazy. That's the first thing I noticed. Here's the second thing I noticed. In the moments immediately after the passion, everybody knew he was crazy. Crazy for love. Like if you look at the last 24 hours of Jesus' life, Jesus faced basically all the big categories of sin and of suffering controlled by love and conquered them in that way. Let me show you. Um, have you ever been betrayed? You ever been betrayed before? Yeah? Well, first, Jesus shows us how to face betrayal as he washes Judas's feet in love. Ever been anxious before or in emotional anguish? Well, next, Jesus shows us how to overcome anxiety as he sweats blood in the garden of Gethsemane by simply relenting to the will of the Father. God's love language, by the way, is obedience. Ever wanted revenge? Jesus shows us how to resist retaliation and love your enemy as he tells Peter, put away your sword. Sure, there's an angel army that's got our back, but put away your sword. And then he picks Malchus's ear up off the ground and fastens it to the side of his head right before the guy cuffs him. Talk about love. Ever felt alone before? Jesus shows us how love can keep us on mission when all of our best friends abandon us. Ever felt like you were the victim of injustice? Jesus shows us how to respond to injustice with self-control and with nonviolence as he's lied about, abused, and misrepresented at his Jewish trials. Ever been bullied? Jesus shows us how to stand and speak the truth in love before power, knowing that within hours he'll be lynched. Ever been publicly shamed? 
Jesus shows us how to hold fast to his beloved identity as he endures the public shame of being whipped, stripped, slandered, and crucified half naked. Ever suffered physically? Oh, let me tell you about the cross of Jesus. Because Jesus shows us how to endure intense suffering, basically death by torture, with dignity and hope, literally extending grace to another in pain while he hangs there and entrusting his fate in the loving hands of the Father. Father, into your hands I entrust my spirit. Ever felt forsaken by God? Jesus shows us how to process the hiddenness and forsakenness of God with both reverence but also emotional vulnerability. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Ever been persecuted? Jesus shows us how to extend forgiveness to the most hostile of enemies even at your dying breath. Ever felt like a failure before? Jesus shows us how to practice finishing faithfulness even when it looks like failure to the world. You see? You see how this works? You see? Greatest 24 hours a human being has ever lived. Why? Because he was controlled by the great commands. Love for God controlled him. Faced with every form of sin and suffering, he responds in loving obedience and loving sacrifice for us. No wonder when he dies, by the way, a wave of conviction just falls on the people there. According to scripture, a criminal gets converted on a cross next to him. What? One of the Roman soldiers responsible for his execution makes a divinity claim about him. The crowds who were jeering just a couple hours earlier go home grieving and lamenting at what they have done. The religious leaders who were behind it all. Scriptures say they literally were so shook up that the next day they broke Sabbath to go stand before Pilate and beg him to post a Roman guard at the tomb. You see, indeed, indeed, when Christ's love controls us, true authority and influence returns. Fourth, newness of life. Fourth trait of an ambassador, newness of life. Chapter five, verse 17, it says, uh, Paul says this, he says, this means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. Praise God. Another uh, memory verse for you here. The old life is gone. New life has begun. Translation, basically, people should just see Jesus changing you. They should, they should see him changing you. Okay, like if they knew you five years ago, they should be like, you know, what has possessed him? And like in a good way. If they're spending life with you day in and day out, they should see an aggressiveness about you to become more and more like Jesus. You see, as Christians, we believe when you were baptized, the old you was literally laid to rest in that watery grave and a new you rose out. Now, I don't wanna make like some sort of magical promise, okay? It's not like everything just gets fixed by going under the water. The water's not magic. What ends up happening is it usually initiates a Holy Spirit-empowered process over the course of the rest of your life where you are sanctified over time. You ever heard the old saying, by the way, uh, yeah, that, that's, that's, just, that's just the way that I am. You ever heard that? Just the way that I am. Terrible theology. Terrible. It's not what we believe as followers of Jesus we believe your faith should actually make a difference, does it? Does it? Last, quick review slide here for those of you who are taking notes. Qualities of an ambassador from 2 Corinthians 5, 1, eternal urgency, 2, humble sincerity, 3, controlled by love, 4, newness of life. Here's number five, fifth. 
Fifth, ambassadors of Jesus are those who are actually preaching reconciliation, like with words, with what you say. Uh, Paul says in verse 18, and God has given us this task of reconciling people to him. It's our task, okay? For God was in Christ, reconciling the world himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. So we are Christ's ambassadors. What's it mean to be an ambassador, Paul? Well, God is making his appeal through us. We speak, speak, being the key word there, we speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. So again, basically the point here is that evangelism has to turn from action to words at some point. That's the whole part of our evangelism strategy, by the way, where we say we always walk the walk, but we're ready to talk the talk when the opportunity is right. We've got to have our antennas up for when the opportunity is right. So yeah, see that hand in the back. Go ahead, Tyler. When's the opportunity right? Well, I usually think that the Holy Spirit gives us a sense of this if we're praying for the people in our life who need the the Lord. But um, we used to have this language around here called the four knots. Let me give you our four knots. Anytime you hear someone say any one of these four knots, that's when you just start talking about Jesus. That's your cue. You ready? First, I'm not prepared. I'm not prepared. When people are going through big life transitions into a new stage of life and they seem overwhelmed, this could be getting married, this could be becoming a parent, this could be uh, empty nesting, moving into midlife, losing a job, any, like all sorts of big transitions. When people go through a big life transition, it's a great time for you to talk about the guidance and peace that only God can give. Second, I'm not from here. When people are new to your town or new to your neighborhood, this is a perfect time, perfect time for you to say, well, you could meet some friends in this great community that I'm a part of. I'm not busy, I'm not busy. There are certain holidays or seasons of the year where it's easier to talk about God, isn't it? Like the culture's more open to it, namely Christmas and Easter. One's right around the corner. So how are you utilizing those seasons to invite people into your Christmas celebrations, whether it be a meal at home where you have Christian traditions or whether it be a service at church, an outreach project, to serve event, whatever it may be, it's a perfect time to, to guide them in. Last, I'm not okay. I'm not okay. I think this is the most important one, by the way, for us to master. If people in our life are suffering or sad or confused or, or struggling in any way, and it's clear that they are not okay, it's a wonderful time to talk about Jesus. Don't you believe he can do something for him? Like I do. He can help. So Peter nails this in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. He, uh, he says, instead, you must worship Christ as Lord of your life. Don't miss that first phrase, coming back to it. Instead, worship Christ as Lord as your life. And then he says, and if someone asks about your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it. But do this in a gentle and respectful way. Now, according to, to Peter here, he says, your credibility to speak into people's brokenness starts with what? It starts with living a life that worships Christ as Lord. Starts with that. This is the walk the walk, right? Like there is so much hypocrisy in the church today. So people actually resist the church because they see this discrepancy between our character in life and the content of our preaching, right? So Paul says the starting point of evangelism must be the lordship of Jesus in your own heart. You gotta walk the walk. 
And then when there's this aura of obedience, of love for Jesus in your life, that will actually overflow into abundant life, the Jesus vibe, right? Now, when that happens, it leaks. So when people are dealing with their own issues and they're looking for help and they're looking for God, they're looking for rescue, looking for truth, looking for really anything, then they will look to you and they'll say, well, how are you doing it? Because I knew you in college. Somehow you got it together. Come on, man, how are you, how are you navigating this? Because I know you just went through the same struggles I did, but you just have a different posture different mindset about it all. And in that moment, when you've walked the walk and the opportunity is right, you get a chance to talk the talk. You get the honor, the honor of living into one of your core purposes as an ambassador of Jesus. You get the honor of just simply pointing to him and saying, let me tell you about the gospel. Let me tell you about Jesus because he's the only reason why. You see, so faith conversations do not have to be awkward. You don't have to go to random strangers and like, you know, I go, I'm, I'm in an airplane and I feel God, you know, can I tell you about Jesus? That's just that, don't, like don't. I'm actually telling you not to, unless the spirit really tells you to. He's the only one who's allowed to overrule me there, okay? But, but don't, like, don't look for the, the, the weird opportunities. Far more often, look for the normal, everyday, ordinary ones in the lives of the loved ones that you've been investing in for years, that you've been walking the walk around. Look for those opportunities to preach the good news of reconciliation. Like when's the last time you've told your close friends, hey, I think Jesus can help you be less anxious, more peaceful. When's the last time you've told a loved one, I think Jesus' love could get, get your marriage back on track. When's the last time you appealed to someone, you know, I, I, think, I think hope in Jesus could help you get through this grief. When's the last time you told a friend, I think the truth of Jesus could maybe answer some of your hard questions. When's the last time you told a, a friend, you know, I, I think Jesus can be the friend your lonely heart needs right now. This is one of our honors and opportunities as an ambassador. All right, I'm out of time. Um, can, I, can I close by preaching for a second, just for a second? Uh, some of y'all are like, you've been preaching. How about just close? Okay. Um, <laughs> No, we'll get there, we'll get there. Uh, I, just, I want you to know that I believe the gospel is powerful enough to change people. It's powerful. We don't have to change it for people to need it. You understand? Like we just have to proclaim, we just have to tell people, just have to point to him. We don't have to change our convictions to be more politically palatable. We don't have to change our morals to match pop culture ethics. We don't have to help Jesus land in the 21st century. He's just fine, he's fine. Like all we have to do is just live and preach Jesus with gentleness and respect, as Peter says. That's it. Romans chapter one, verse 16, Jesus says, for I am not ashamed of the good news about Christ. He ain't ashamed. It is the power of God at work, saving everyone who believes, the Jew first and also the Gentile. Power and shame, power and shame. I believe that those two words sum up the tension that most of us live in when it comes to sharing our faith. In my heart of hearts, I believe in the power of God. I've seen it change my life. I've seen it change my family. But at the same time, I feel the shame to talk about Jesus. Like the Christian community is so misconstrued and misunderstood in our culture today. The very worst hypocrites and the very worst example of Christianity is pasted all over the front page of the newspaper. The spokespeople who nobody nominated seize the mic 
because they have the ego and arrogance too and spew all sorts of venom. So I love God. I believe in his power, but it's just kind of, I don't know, it's kind of shameful in this cultural moment to speak for him. Look, navigating this power, shame, tension. It's the ball game, y'all. It is. So here's what I want you to, I just want you to know. As we move through this tension, the worst thing you could possibly do as the shame mounts up is to compromise the gospel to try to fit in. That is not evangelism, that's compromise. And if you compromise, we will lose our power source. Don't cave. Be courageous. Don't believe the fear tactic that somehow Christianity is done if we don't modernize. That fear tactic's been tried before. Perfect example, let's rewind 100 years ago, 1920s. There was this uh, basically a split among Christians called the modernist fundamentalist debate. Basically, Orthodox Christians were told that if they didn't do away with all the supernatural parts of Christianity, it would not make it in a modern world. Get rid of this all this resurrection and miracles and inspired Bible stuff. And guess what? Look around 100 years later, they were wrong. Uh, Russell Moore once preached that uh, Christianity has always been unbelievable. Uh, he says, all the way back to its beginning when Mary came to Joseph and said, it's a virgin birth. In that moment, Joseph did not say, well, Mary, it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas, did he? No, he tried to put her away quietly because it was nonsense. But as he found out, he was wrong. About 25 years ago, John Shelby Spong um, a bishop in the Episcopalian church published a book called Why Christianity Must Change or Die. Um, he wrote it because mainline churches were dying. His church was dying and they had to figure it out. So in the book, he argued that since American culture was secularizing, the church needed to do the same. Change the church with changing times. That's the key to evangelism. So many mainliners jump on the bandwagon and not surprisingly, his work was heralded as, as brilliant by the academy, so far ahead of his time. Only problem is that if you go ahead of his time, I don't know, 25 years later to the moment that we're living in, he's wrong. He's wrong. God love him, the Lord bless and keep him. He's wrong. Pew Research Center released a study in 2015. There was also a big Canadian study released in 2017, both proving that theologically liberal churches are in steep decline, like to the tune of losing a million people a year, while theologically orthodox churches are doing quite well. Basically, weak Christianity is getting weaker, robust, orthodox, historic Christianity remains stable and strong. Even though like Pope Francis, we don't fit in nobody's box. So we have to allow the power of the gospel to be greater than the shame our culture is pushing in our direction. You can feel it, right? Can you feel it? You know what I can feel? I can feel the shame, but I can also feel the culture breaking. Our culture is reaching a breaking point. All the secular stories of salvation are being proven as fraudulent in this moment. The liberals do not have it figured out. The conservatives do not have it figured out. The elites are losing touch. The scientific community has as many questions as they do answers. The American dream isn't as dreamy as we thought. The sexual liberation movement isn't as liberating as we'd hoped. The moral majority has proven to be quite immoral. The affluence and the wealth of a rich nation has only made us selfish and fragile. 
All these idols are being stripped and revealed for what they are, false gospels. And we have the opportunity to step in this moment with the real gospel, the power of God. So church, be courageous, be controlled by love. And I wanna remind you, the only reason you are here today is because someone was courageous enough to share the good news with you. So I wonder if you might have this opportunity, this wonderful blessing in your life. Now, uh, to close the sermon here, I'm gonna step backstage and pray. And I'm gonna let Tabitha, one of our fellow stakeholders here at Northeast, preach the gospel to you and tell a bit of her story. And I hope it serves as an inspiration. Tabitha. Uh, my name is Tabitha Salisbury. I uh, have been going to Northeast for close to 15 years. I was brought to Northeast by my mother, um, Karen. We were looking for um, a new home church that just kind of made us feel comfortable. And I always feared being judged a little bit, so Northeast gave me that feeling of almost like I fit in. It wasn't until I got older and the realities of life and, the, you know, the ideas of childhood kind of diminished that I questioned a lot of things about my faith and what was going on. I was also dealing with uh, mental illnesses that I was not diagnosed with. I ended up uh, addicted to a lot of drugs. I dealt with sexual immorality. Um, everything about what somebody would respect about themselves, I gave up. And I lost sight of Jesus 100%. I got pregnant my senior year of high school and it turned my life upside down a little bit just because I was afraid. I was afraid of the unknown. I was a kid myself and I wasn't sure if people were gonna desert me, if I was gonna be okay. And uh, long story short, we ended up, that's my oldest daughter, um, and I married her father. That was my first husband. Um, that marriage didn't work out. It was around that time that I started really experiencing some heaviness of the mental illness and postpartum depression and whatnot. It led me down um, to a moment where I uh, was in the midst of my addiction and I actually, my drug of choice was uh, opiates. And um, I was alone, I was scared, I was in a bathroom, a hotel bathroom. And I just reached out and cried and prayed to be saved. That was uh, the beginning of an extremely long journey. Uh, unfortunately, my past had caught up to me and I had gotten in trouble with the law. So at that time, regardless if I was going for sobriety and finding a way out, I still had to be held accountable. So um, my probation was revoked and I ended up in sobriety serving 26 months. Um, and that was the first time I had ever been to jail. I'd never been to jail before in my life. When I ended up in prison, I decided to spend my time in a substance abuse program. So I spent a year or six months completing the program and then a year mentoring to other women in the program. Um, and that is really where I had time to focus on my spirituality. Uh, when I was in there, I started uh, reading the Bible chronologically and God just spoke to me. Uh, multiple times. Sometimes I think I'm crazy because I feel like God speaks to my heart so much. 
After I was released from prison, I came back home to live with my mom. I did not have custody of my girls yet at that time. I'm, I'm kind of trying to place myself into society and I'm working and then an opportunity arises because I had always really loved bartending and craft cocktailing and people and I was really good at it. So my family and I started a restaurant downtown and I thought that that was what we were supposed to do. And then it was probably less than a year that it fell apart. Too many um, opinions, especially my own, I didn't know what I was doing. And just as fast as this was placed in my life, God stripped it away. I lost everything again and um, had a small mental break at that moment. And but then that is when I think the real change happened. I, uh, I cracked a little bit and um, I had relapsed. And when I relapsed, uh, I did die. Um, I flatlined for like six minutes. And my husband found me. And since then, I don't know, there's no reason I should be alive. I know that something divine happened in that moment. I can't exactly explain it. But um, everything at that moment was different. Like when I came out of that, I had a purpose. I know that God brought me back and when I came back, the very next day, like that, because I ended up to go stay in um, Our Lady in Peace for three days. <laughs> and I was released on a Saturday. And I just kept listening to my way of femme over and over again. And I wanted to go to church so bad. And I went to church the next morning, and it was the first, um, the first set of the series on mental illness. Everything from that moment, it, it literally took me losing my life, not just losing my belongings, my family. I to lose my life. I'm sorry. Before God, I was lost. Um, I was stuck in addiction. I uh, had no self-value, um, no identity and I was uh, just clinging to any bit that I could to find my own in the world. Um, once I found Jesus, I have been taken out of that and given an identity. And I know my identity and I know the purpose I have. And now, today, I am sober. I have both of my girls back. Um, I'm in a happy marriage I would like. To, I feel a calling to work with um, the poor and the homeless and the addicted. Those, those are the people that I need to be with. The people that have broken, that have been where I've been. Jesus gave me everything back. And even if I can't preach to everybody everywhere, I just hope that my life and like the walk that I walk is an, an example of Christ and just his love, the love that he's had for me, 
the love he has for my family and the love he has for them, all of these people, and they just don't know. And it breaks my heart that they don't know. And so that's my calling now. That's where I'm at. Basically to minister to the exact type of demographic I was.